Good evening, everyone. It's Father Sean. It is January 6th for Sean the Baptist Live, and that means it is the Epiphany. Now, this is the the actual date of the Epiphany, January 6th. Um, a lot of times in parts of the world today, it gets transferred to uh, the nearest Sunday. So for most of us in the United States, uh, we celebrated Epiphany, for instance, on last Sunday. If you're paying attention to Rome today, it is Epiphany in, in Rome today because it is January 6th. So you got the whole 12 days of Christmas thing and 12th night and uh, used to always be January 6th. And then we got into this whole transferring of, of feast things. So um, I, I put uh, the title for tonight to talk a little bit about uh, Epiphany and, and such things. But uh, yeah, obviously, um, well, I'm a little flustered as I uh, imagine most of you are. And so... Uh, for those joining live, thanks to our, our normal group that is, is joining live. And, uh, you know, obviously, um, a troubling day in our nation's capital and really for, for all of us. So I, I'm, I'm torn here because I, I don't, my goal is probably not necessarily to uh, talk a whole bunch of politics on here. You know, we don't do a whole lot about that. I talk about how our faith overlaps a little bit, so perhaps we can can do a little bit of that. So I, my plan is to talk about the uh, the wise men, the water of Jesus's baptism, and the the overabundance of wine at the wedding feast of Cana, all manifestations or epiphanies of Jesus that we celebrate uh, today. But um, yeah, I think uh, we got to say something about uh, today's events in Washington, and so maybe I'll just. Uh, I'll just be frank with you and open open up with that, um, because, well, I, as a lot of you know, I studied in Washington D.C., so I I I lived uh, just a few metro stops from the the capital uh, for three years and uh, have uh, friends that uh, work in the government and on Capitol Hill and at the White House and the Supreme Court and uh, I have been a great patriot and lover of our country since, well, as long as I can remember. I remember in fifth grade, my, uh, my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Weimer, uh, we got a computer back then, and one of the games you could play on that computer was to learn the Constitution. She was my social studies teacher, and I played that game so much and learned so much about the Constitution. She actually made me my own certificate saying that I was a Constitution master. And so I knew all the articles of the Constitution and all the amendments and everything like that. Um, so I, like a lot of you, I have love for our country. And uh, particularly we know in our military that a much higher proportion of all of our military men and women are, are Catholic as opposed to the general percentage of Catholics in the normal U.S. population. So we as Catholics and being patriots, it, it kind of goes together. So I, I don't even like to criticize our, our country, even though that's, that's part of a good democracy. So those that know me know I certainly uh, will not hold back from criticizing the, uh, the country when I need to. Um, but often, you know, criticizing one thing, it uh, just angers the other half of people. And I guess we can say today that everybody just ought to be just ashamed, ticked off, mad uh it's it's one of those days that just everybody loses it just sucked 
there was <sighs> I it, it was it was like I felt when I was watching Notre Dame Cathedral burn on the news. We were just watching it burn and there's nothing you can do to stop it and it's just bad. Um, I have protested many, many times in Washington, D.C. Uh, marched all the way up to the Capitol building at the Supreme Court. I I love protest and, and demonstration. Um, I, I don't... I, there, there's not anybody who could condone anything that was done on, on, on Capitol Hill today. And uh, I, th- I suppose that's the easy part because everyone can kind of condemn that, I suppose. And I, I don't want to, I'm not saying anything about the, the people who went in. As is often the case, the first things you see are wrong uh, and then more news gets out. So it, it appears that some of the, the main instigators that actually went into the Capitol building are Antifa or protest, uh, this terrorist group i guess uh so we'll wait and see like who was ultimately all that but um i guess one thing that comes to my mind is something that i pointed out here a long time over and over and that is there is nothing magical about the united states system of of government in itself such that with all the other systems of government in the history of the world that this is just the only one that has worked this well it's really not the case it's it's a good system of government. Our constitution has, in fact, proven itself to, to work well. But as everyone who wrote that constitution, everyone who signed it, said that this, this constitution or any form of government will be completely inadequate to govern any people who are not, first and foremost, people of religious faith, who have strong moral convictions to a higher power, that they will do more than simply what a constitution might allow them to get away with uh that our constitution as thomas jefferson wrote the declaration of independence and john adams helped write the uh, constitution as they both said this is for religious people it is entirely unsuitable for any other people i thought about that today as you know the the capital police uh were overwhelmed it reminded me of when i lived in washington the the White House was overwhelmed in that case by one person, you know, uh, a, a person, you know, climbed the fence at the White House and actually got in the White House, something you think is just not, not possible. And then because of that, no one else could get close to the fence. They had to put a second fence in front of the White House and now you can't get there. So everybody loses. But today the Capitol Police got overrun. And the thought that came to my mind was this. There is not a police force or a military big enough to keep out of the capital uh, a sufficiently sizable force of people who would want to get in. Just numbers. Can't, can't do it. What, what keeps people ultimately safe and out of the, the capital is that 99.9999% of all people who look at the capital building do not want to illegally enter it. They're good people. They don't not break into the Capitol because, oh, the, the doors are too difficult or I, I couldn't smash a window. Today, it, it was it proved that if you want to break into the Capitol, you can. It's just that we have good people who don't. And that means you've only got a few small weirdos that like jump the, the fence at the White House or something. We can take care of those. But 
we, we can't take care of ridiculousness like this if an entire country or say half the country or today even whatever percentage that is we rely on the vast vast majority of our citizens being good upstanding religiously motivated people who fear god more than they they fear just the the punishment of some law or government so i have always thought that when our country fails it, it it's going to be because we simply as a citizenry lost all of our moral ability and and there i think is the deeper question to to ask in all this we uh are often told that we're a divided country and now it seems like every election we have it, it like splits you know like 50 50 millions of votes counts and it, it comes down to like a, a couple thousand votes are, are we really that just diametrically opposed that we just break down black and white into two just hard factions like that i don't think so i think the media has a vested interest in making us think that we are that divided because that sells things i i have turned off the media and not watched it because it doesn't do any good to get all worked up that they want to find issues that precisely will keep us divided but even i had to turn on the media today and look and see the spectacle play out so i i think if there could be any kind of a reset it, it would need to be that we're actually not as divided as we think but we've reduced our politics down to like cheering for your favorite sports team i mean when, when i was growing up it was back when university of kansas played the university of missouri all the time and yeah i mean that goes back to the civil war and so yeah there's kind of a fun rivalry where yeah we're gonna you know beat missouri and we hate them more than anybody else or missouri hated kansas but all right, it's kind of fun and games because it's sports. But we we take that and we apply it to everything now. It's like our politics. It's like, when was the last time you saw a mixed vote on, on anything? You know, I, every single vote is, is right along party lines. And I won't give an inch because that hurts my team. And, I'm you know, we're going to stick together as a team. And, well, then if we break down it to two teams and it's us against them. And that rhetoric's gotten pretty heavy uh in my lifetime and i will i will also say again i i don't know everything that's going on but um i am all about legal challenges and using legal challenges that you you have to uh fight for your rights absolutely but essentially the legal challenges to this current presidential election filled with problems as it was it seems to have run out. And and so in that sense, I really think uh, I have always taken great pride on Inauguration Day that even amidst this heated battle where we are like one side against another, at least when it's done, it's done. And we're, we're going to deal with it, you know, for the next four years or, or whatever. And, and then there'll be another four. And this is why George Washington resigned after two terms. Because he's like, well, if... If I leave, then the country gets to go on and it doesn't have to get stuck on thinking that uh, the president is the, the important person. The president is not always the greatest important person. In fact, it shouldn't be. Um, so there is a great thing that we've done in the United States where we peacefully transition power. I like that. I think all of us like that, no matter what side you're on. But this time, things have gotten a little bit like... Uh, 
you know, the uh, going to use all your timeouts and keep calling timeout when you're you're down 20 points at the end and you're just going to keep fouling at the end of the basketball game just because you got more options and keep doing it even if it doesn't change the outcome. I I, I think, uh, you know, I've, admittedly, I've, I wanted Trump to win uh, just because of the good things that had had happened, but especially to avoid some of the bad things that I thought would happen. But it, it's time for it to, to end. Uh, and boy, I... I can't imagine. I would have never imagined in my lifetime that will we even be able to have the ingoing and the outgoing president sitting on the same dais on inauguration day? Will will there be protest? Not in my lifetime. There haven't been, and uh, and I've had some presidents I really didn't like, and that half the country really didn't like. Um, so I. I don't know. I, I feel like I need to be on record as, as saying uh, something there. Uh, maybe just event a little bit uh, as well. And, and certainly, if, if you want to ask questions about that, I'm I'm happy to. And I am, of course, like all of you, still processing, I suppose you'd say, uh, a bit of this. Uh, and there'll be obviously more information coming out. But um, saddest, saddest thing I have ever seen... Uh, in my adult, I suppose, political life, I uh, I remember when I got the 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 honor to to be on the floor of uh, the United States Congress, uh, and um, my my friend, you know, I had some connections, was able to get in, and you know, uh, and actually be on the the floor when they weren't in session, and and visit the floor of the Congress, and. Uh, even I, when I was there, I, I would, no way could you, you go up to the, the, the speaker's dais. You know, that's, that's sacred. And um, when I saw today a, a, a picture of that half-naked tattooed guy with fur and horns on his head standing at the, the president's dais in the, the Senate, I... That's one of the saddest things I've ever seen. I, the last time I would imagine a picture like that, all, all I could think of is is when the the British took over in eighteen fourteen and burned the place down. That's what it reminded me of. And here are these people waving American flags and and standing in our Congress, uh, treating it cheaply. I. There could have been a lot of lives lost today. I, I mean, the, the Capitol Police was obviously going to have to debrief it, but but by the grace of God, I mean, I, I'm sure there had to be a moment where they're just, do we just open fire on the crowd and put down the, the invasion of the terrorists that are coming in? I, I'm sure somebody had to make a, a snap decision. Do we kill thousands of people today who are trying to, breach the uh the capital someone made the decision not to and they'll have to look and see if that was the right decision but um man a lot of people put their lives and the lives of a lot of people in danger today a lot a lot a lot of lives could have been lost on on top of all that was lost today basically our, our national dignity and honor um so this was just a bad bad day for america uh, now, 
when bad, bad days happen for America, we have typically followed that with some good days. Uh, and we certainly pray that, that that will now happen. And maybe, I don't know, every time something terrible happens, we're like, well, maybe this will finally be the thing. Well, I mean, there's no easy fix to, to this to say, well, this is the thing that will fix the thing that's wrong. There's so much wrong. But what I do know is that if we continue to think that somehow mere laws and mere government and mere police will prevent things like this, we're just wrong. This constitution was created for a religious people. It is entirely unsuitable for any other than a religious, morally uh, motivated people. That's what the people who wrote the constitution said. Uh, if we can't recover that, then there's no police force big enough that's going to stop the, the next invasion to the, the capital. And uh, the country's going to fall, not from outside invasion, but when we invade ourselves within morality. And we've, we've been heading there. So this could be a wake-up call, but I don't know how exactly we're all going to collectively wake up from what we're in. But maybe this can be a, a chance to step back at least a little bit and, and say that we don't want to see this again. And um, if there's something to, there, there's really no seeing both. There's no both sides of this. It's just, it's just bad. But one thing it also did crystallize for me is how important the integrity of our voting system is. Every single vote. And sometimes we play flippant with that and we joke about dead people voting and, oh, well, we'll, you know, get uh, your neighbors to fill out this ballot and that and we can kind of joke about it and, um Every single American needs to know that their vote counts and it counted equally because there's no fraud. Uh, and if we lose that, one person playing fast and loose with, uh, with uh, voting integrity, people will die. The thing that keeps the peace is that if everybody knows that their vote counted and they still lost for almost 250 more years, we've been able to say, okay, we voted. And it was close, but we lost. This is the first election in my lifetime where it was at least widely called into question. And I'm not saying one way or the other if that's legit or not. I've stayed away from it. But never in my life has anyone even been able to question, gosh, I wonder if that was a fair election. I mean, not in America. We're the ones that goes polices the other countries to say, was that a fair election? Because we're supposedly knowing how to do this. For whatever reason, and this started a long time back before just election day, uh, we we loosened up a lot of things so that bottom line is when it came time to certify election votes, a lot of people were apparently able to say, I don't think this was legitimate. And it wasn't just immediately obvious that they were wrong. And so I, whatever needs to change to fix that, I mean, if we need to all vote in person, we all need to vote in person. I mean, that's what we did my whole life until recently. I mean, there was election day. I mean, literally, election day. It was on the calendar. It was a big deal. And you stood in line. You knew you were going to stand in line. Make election day a federal holiday. Let everybody stand in line all day if they need to to vote. If that's what it takes so that we can avoid bloodshed at the the Capitol uh, because people aren't sure it was a fair election, then do whatever that takes. But I, I think, as a lot of people have pointed out, those legal avenues come later now to fix things, not today. Uh, the, the idea that Congress could overturn an election or something, that would be a disaster in itself. 
Um, so I suppose some uh, hosts do a little opening monologue, I suppose. I've never done a little opening monologue on the Sean the Baptist live show, so I don't even know what comments you guys have made on that. Um, but uh, I just, I know that um, that's kind of my rough first take on things. And I have not been plugged into all the, the rhetoric. I did not watch debates. I did not watch news because I know it was a firestorm of, of rhetoric and ridiculousness. And in the end, it was not going to affect uh, the information that I needed to, to make up my mind as to who to vote for. Uh, and I did not intend to watch much coverage afterwards. And then today I got stuck watching TV this afternoon rather than reading about the Star of Bethlehem, which is what I wanted to do because uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that tonight. So that's enough of the, the opening monologue, if you will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check over and, and see if anybody's any comments. If, if, if we want to just stop talking about that, that'd be great. Uh, and we could talk about epiphany stuff. But on this historic day, if you can call it that, there's uh, John the Baptist, uh, quick opening take, I suppose. Okay, with that having been said, oh my goodness, there are actually still people watching. Praise God. Okay, if you've got questions about that, um, happy to discuss it. Thanks, uh, Mark, for your comments there. Okay, so uh, with that said, Epiphany. I, I, it's a feast day, people. Um, so probably a lot of you would be aware that uh, epiphany uh, means manifestation in, in Greek. Uh, so it, it represents, uh, sometimes we'll, we'll say, oh, the, it's the arrival of the, the magi at the major. And if you look behind me, the kings are, well, they're there. They're the kings. Um, so they have uh, arrived, although I typically don't do the little walk them up and get them closer to the manger little by little. Um, I just put them out anyway, because the, the kings probably didn't maybe arrive for, I don't know, could have been two years. They, Herod kills like all the children like two years and younger when the Magi comes, so we don't know exactly when the Magi got there. And so the, the manger scene is not quite complete if you, if you don't have everybody there. So I just go ahead and put them all out there. <coughs> so, um, by the way, people were wondering, there was a little lack of morning messages over the past week. I've had, I, I had flu. It, uh, flu, cold, something. I went and got tested for COVID and it was negative. Um, I, I thought maybe because I, I didn't have the temperature or anything like that. But then, you know, other people were like, no, you can, you can have it and not have a temperature. So I, I went and got tested and in fact, I was negative. But anyway, it knocked me out for about a week. So sorry if you were uh, missing the morning message. I, uh, I'm back at it now. But um, I digress. So, back to Epiphany. Uh, the arrival of the Magi. Um, the reason that this is a manifestation is that the, the Magi, they, they're not Jewish. Okay. Now, remember, the point of the Jewish nation is, is that this is the, the group that is God's chosen people. They have the promises. They have the covenant. And so, God is preparing them for his definitive revelation or manifestation when he himself comes in person in, as the Messiah. Well, of course, they don't all get it. In fact, when Jesus is born, not very many people at all are ready for it. Uh, so the Magi are not Jewish. So they, they represent everybody else in the world. So the Messiah is not just for the chosen people, not just for the Jews, but for everybody. 
And, and that's something that Jews at the time wouldn't have necessarily thought of. Like, what do you mean? What could be more Jewish than the Messiah? The, the Messiah is for us. Um, so there's the, the Jews and then there's the Gentiles. Gentile comes from the, the word genus, which, which means people, nations, peoples. There, there's the Jews and there's the Gentiles. There's the in-group and there's, there's everybody else. Uh, so the Magi represent the Gentiles. They represent the fact that uh, he has been made manifest, revealed, to more than simply the in-group of the, the chosen people, but for everybody. Now, that's good news for all of us because probably most of you watching, uh, if, if you're Catholic and weren't raised Jewish, you're, you're not Jewish. Now, I've said before on this show that really, if you're Catholic, you, you are Jewish because spiritually uh, speaking, we're, we're on the same tree. Uh, everything that God started in Abraham, all the way through Moses and David and on down through the kings, that's us. We're, we're everything that, that God intended for his chosen people. But strictly speaking, we were not a part of the covenant through circumcision and the old law. We are, as St. Paul tells us, as it were, grafted on to the covenant through faith, through baptism. So one of the things then about the manifestation of Jesus is that he is manifest not just to the people in Bethlehem, not just to the shepherds, not just to the Jewish people, but with the arrival of the Magi, he is now manifest to the whole world, to all the nations as represented by the, the Magi who arrive. So a lot of people would be familiar with that aspect of Epiphany. What you might not know is that there are actually two other manifestations uh, that are celebrated at Epiphany. The second of which is Jesus's baptism. Now, we're going to celebrate the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord this upcoming weekend, uh, but traditionally, and this is true even, even today in the, the prayers for the day of Epiphany, uh, Jesus is recognized as being made manifest on the day of his baptism. Now, how is that? Well, because when Jesus comes up out of the water, you know, that's when we, we really learn his identity. Because when he first shows up, you know, he, he might be presumed to be like all the other sinners that are coming to repent. But when Jesus comes up out of the water, having undergone the baptism just for the sake of fulfilling all righteousness, for making the waters holy, for everyone else to be baptized, um, the heavens are open. And the voice of the Father is heard saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Well, that is a manifestation then of clearly who Jesus is. God the Father is speaking, saying, This is my Son. And the, the Holy Spirit is seen hovering like a dove. So we, we have a, a manifestation of the entire Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all right there making clear who Jesus is. So his circle of manifestation grows, not just as a little baby made manifest to the nations with the arrival of the Magi. Now he's made known to, to all those who are, who are there being baptized by John. Now, probably mainly Jews uh, at that point, uh, but nonetheless manifest in a way that perhaps a lot of people wouldn't even have expected for the Messiah 
the idea that Messiah would be God's son? God himself? That's that's getting uh, deeper maybe even than, than some people who were waiting for the Messiah would have thought. So that's the second mystery that is is brought up in the Epiphany. I said there are three manifestations that we really look at in the Epiphany. One is to the Magi. The second is at Jesus' baptism. The third, believe it or not, is at the wedding feast of Cana. Like, what the heck? That's right. And uh, the wedding feast of Cana is actually the the third uh, manifestation that is, is celebrated at uh, Jesus' epiphany. Why is this? Well, because at the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus works his first miracle. Now, we've heard it as baptism. You know, this is my beloved son. But at Cana, Jesus works that, that famous miracle where he, he turns water into wine. And so he manifests himself as, as having power uh, that, that God would have to be able to do that. So it's a further revelation or manifestation of, of who Jesus is. So if you look at the prayers for, for Mass on the day of Epiphany, uh, and especially the, the Liturgy of the Hours, the Divine Office, uh, there will be references to not only the, the star and the Magi, what we often associate with Epiphany, but there will also be references to the baptism of Jesus and to the water made wine at Cana. So if you if you listen and you hear that in, in the liturgy, just know that that's not a mistake. Um, in fact, long before we even celebrated Christmas, Epiphany, or as it's known in the East, Theophany, the the uh, manifestation of God, Theos is is God. So Theophany, as it's still called today in the East, um, this was the big day. This was the day that Jesus was made known, and it, it celebrated all three of these events. The arrival of the Magi under the guidance of a star, the baptism in the Jordan by John of Jesus, and the wedding feast at Cana. All of these manifestations of Jesus. It's interesting, I mentioned in today's morning message, that uh, in in the new rite of mass that we've we've had since the, the Second Vatican Council, the uh, the days after Epiphany, um, the the lectionary each gospel reading kind of gives some kind of miracle story, a little bit about Jesus, to uh, show a manifestation, as it were, of of Jesus. And and today's was Jesus walking on the water while the, the apostles are in the boat and there's the, the storm at sea and Jesus comes walking on the water and he's going to go by them, but they, uh, they're they able to see him coming and he gets in the boat and the, the waves all die down. This uh, manifestation is, is one that I, I think is important uh, that we look at in that it shows us that Jesus is Lord of all of creation. In one of the other Gospels, I mean, they, they marvel and say, who then is this, that even the, the wind and the sea obey him? Okay, that's a good question. Who is this? And that's, that's really what any epiphany answers. Who is this? Well, an epiphany reveals, well, this is who it is. Uh, there's that Christmas carol, you know, what child is this? To the tune of uh, green sleeves. Well, the child grows up and there's still a question, who is he? Uh, well, think that, Jesus is the Word who made all things. All of creation came to be 
through Jesus. So therefore, it makes sense that when Jesus comes on the scene, that everything obeys him, including the sea. If he wants to walk on the sea, does water normally do that? Well, as a scientist, I could say, well, the surface tension in water is not sufficient to support the uh, the weight of a human person uh, unaided. Yeah, but who created water with its surface tension in the first place? God, Jesus, the Word. So if he created it, can he make it so he can walk on it? Yeah, God can do that. Uh, if, if he, you know, created the sun, which through the uneven heating of the earth creates the weather cycles and creates the wind and thus the, the waves on the water. Same God who made all that, can can he then make it so that the waves die down in his word? Yeah, he can do that. In fact, the only person who could do that would have to be the person who created it. After all, if, if we've discerned a law in creation that cannot be broken, well, the only person who can violate that law then with impunity is the lawgiver himself. So the logos, the word, the law, who created the laws of nature is really the only one who's then free to make nature do whatever the heck he wants because he's over it. So that's how Jesus can walk on water. That's how he's able to calm the sea. It also means um, that God is able to use creation for our good. And this is where I want to talk a little bit about the, the star of, of Bethlehem now. And Oh, I see. I, I've got one question, though, from uh, David Tunick, my uncle. Uh, did they live in Bethlehem, uh, meaning the Holy Family here, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, did they live in Bethlehem for two years until they came from the east? What we don't know. So what we know is that the Gospel of Matthew tells us that the Magi arrive in Jerusalem and say that we saw his star at its rising which we'll talk a little bit about. What does that mean for a star to rise? Great segue there. And um, they want to know where he's at. And, well, Herod inquires amongst the uh, prophets and his courtiers, and they look in the scriptures, and they find, well, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod sends the Magi to Bethlehem. And it says, the next thing we hear is that, you know, they they meet Jesus. And the, the word that is used for... The, the child is, is not um, the same Greek word that would be used for infant. Like uh, when the shepherds encounter Jesus and the infant lying in the manger, um, the, the word in Greek that is used when the magi see the, the child could more likely refer to a toddler. Uh, so there's, there's that that says maybe Jesus was a little bit older. And there's also the fact that when Herod finds out that the magi have you know not come back but have gone home a different way, Herod kills all the children two years old and younger. And it says based upon the arrival of the star that the Magi said. So theoretically, that gives us some inclinations that Jesus could have been a year, two years old, something like that. Um, Wouldn't have to be, but there are a couple indications there. So I hope that helps, Dave, on your, your question. But um, since we talked about the, the star of Bethlehem and the, the rising of a star, I might do a whole show on this one point. And I, I have to admit, I've been reading a great book on it. And I've, I've often been um, fascinated by the, the star of, of Bethlehem. But one of the, the things that people often ask, um, part of Dave's question there was, uh, you know, they came from the east. 
Well, that that is um, what we believe. It, it does say in Matthew's gospel that you know we we saw his star, and and here's the where it gets a little confusing because the word that's used, <coughs> excuse me, in the Greek, um, doesn't necessarily refer to the east as in a, a direction, as it refers to east as in the the rising. And if if you remember when we talked about the O antiphons, I I talked about O Orients. Remember that's the place of the rising. So the sun rises in the Orient because the sun is the one who who rises. Um, literally, the the word in Greek doesn't mean necessarily a direction, as it means we saw his star uh, at its its beginning. Now, two two different ways you can interpret the star's beginning. It, it could be. Uh, as as we know uh, from the the rotation of the Earth, the, the the Earth rotates from from west to east. So if you're looking down on it from the North Pole, you know counter counterclockwise. Uh, that that means that as the Earth rotates from west to east, it appears that the the sun, the the moon, the stars all rotate then from east to west. Um, it's it's not really moving that way. It's it's the Earth that's moving and and not the the stars. Although everything is in motion and everything is moving, but relatively speaking, Einstein here, uh, it appears that the uh, the stars are basically still and the Earth rotates, and so they they appear to move relative to the Earth. Well, there are two different ways you can look at a star rising. Then one would be that simply some of the stars uh, fall below the horizon. Uh, at certain times, and so as the Earth rotates around, the stars, when it's dark, will pop up above the horizon and appear to sail over towards the west and then set, just like the sun does. Now, some stars stay up all the time because of their proximity to the the North Pole, uh, but a lot of the stars rise and set. So, could be that the Star of Bethlehem, to talk about its rising, means that, well, you, you saw it right as it, it popped ab- above the horizon in the east. problem with that is stars that rise will do it every night um, because the, the Earth spins around once on its axis a lot more quickly than it goes around uh, the sun. That takes 365 and a quarter days. The other takes 24 hours. You guys know that. Uh, so to say that we, we saw the star at its rising, well, that, that star would rise every single day at almost the same point over and over and over again. So that's, that's not all that unusual. Uh, in fact, that same star would have risen in exactly the same spot like clockwork since the beginning of time. There's another sense in which, however, a star rises. Let me share this one with you. Because this is the one that I think makes more sense to me as as what the uh, rising of a star might be. And oh, I've I've lost two people in the midst of that astronomy lesson, so sorry for that. Uh, but if you're still here, we'll make this short. All right. So uh, because the this is the sun, the Earth, you know, is is going around the sun. So if I'm over here, this is two dimensional. You can't even see it. Pretend that the sun is in between you and a planet. You can't see the planet because there's the bright sun in the way, okay? 
This is the same way with the moon. We, maybe you can see it with the moon better. Uh, the so-called new moon is, is when the, the moon is lined up with the sun. So you, you can't see the moon because it's only lined up with the sun. So during the daytime, it has, the, the moon has to move away from the sun a certain number of degrees until you can see it again. And that's when you sight the new moon and it, you know, it, it comes back out. Well, same thing happens with planets. It's just that the planets are going a lot slower around the sun than the, the moon is around the Earth. So the planets, like Jupiter and Saturn that we saw just come together, they too will go behind the sun, as it will. The, the sun will be between the Earth and the planet. And when it gets close enough, eventually you can't see it because the sun's in the way. This, everyone, ancient Babylonians knew, the, the people the, the, around the time of the Magi, everyone knew this. In fact, they, we have tables from ancient Babylon where they calculate when will the planet disappear into the sun, but more importantly, when will it reappear on the other side of the sun? And this was known as the birth of the star. Now, you're thinking like, Father Sean, planets aren't stars, you're stupid. Well, I, I'm not stupid, but um, in fact, planets were considered stars. Uh, I, the people there, they knew they weren't stars like the, the far, far, far away stars, but the word planet just means wanderer, so they were called wandering stars. They knew that they were different from the other stars because they moved against the background of the stars. So anyway, planets were also called stars. So to say that you would see a star, a planet, at its rising would mean that you would see it when it came out from the other side of the sun. And so, astrologically speaking, you would be able to predict what date that would be, uh, when it would happen, and, and also importantly, what constellation of the zodiac would it be near? And, and you would read this like a, a horoscope, basically, to say, oh, a new star has been born, meaning uh, the planet Jupiter, for instance, has come out from the backside of the sun. This is called the heliacal rise of a star. Now notice it's not rising at all. It's actually separating from the, the sun. Uh, I think it, like 12 degrees or something, I think is, is kind of what you need as a minimum to be able to see it again. Um, they would refer to that as the rising or even the birth of a new star, even though it's the same planet Jupiter that went behind the sun, you know, however many days previously, now it's born again. Uh, so anyway, that might be a way to interpret what it means to say that they saw the star at its rising, or they saw the star at its birth, or same word for east, it's orients, it's orient. Um, so all that goes into the, the star of Bethlehem. So, whew, all right, I didn't lose any other people in the midst of that. If that was helpful, I... I hope so, but that's, anyway, I think it's important that, I mentioned this in my Christmas homily, but um, for those of you that did go out and look at the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, that's that's another kind of astrological horoscope kind of thing, a conjunction of, of two planets or two stars, even though we, we know planets aren't stars. Um, notice, though, that it wasn't very impressive as far as, like, optically speaking. If you were looking for some incredible bright light in the sky... I just think there's very little evidence that the star of Bethlehem was any kind of natural bright light in the sky. Okay, supernova, 
they can be a bright flash of light in the sky. They don't happen very often. Uh, most of the time they require, you know, binoculars or a telescope to, to see. And um, they're not necessarily considered good omens. And we know from records that there, there really wasn't a supernova at the time of Jesus' birth. Novas are, you know, even, even less bright and, and flashy. Um, could be a comet. Problem is, comets don't behave the way the stars described in Matthew. And comets, universally, were bad signs. No one would see a comet and think, oh, good, a new king has been born. No, death and destruction comes from comets. So that wouldn't have been it. And there's no evidence that a, a comet would have got someone's attention. Rather, I think, than a, a bright, flashy thing in the sky, the Star of Bethlehem would have been something more like the helical rise of the planet Jupiter or, or Saturn or maybe combined with the conjunction or, or something like that, where the Magi were astrologers. So they're going to read the sky the way astrologers would read the sky, meaning not really by observing it and looking at it. They were mathematicians, okay? To be an astrologer was to be a mathematician. We know this from the ancient Babylonians. They calculated out with great precision where the, the planets would be. So sometimes you hear people like, oh my gosh, a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, that's so incredible. This would have really freaked the Magi out and they would have known something's up. Well, no, I, they would have been able to predict that conjunction hundreds of years in advance and every other conjunction, just like we can say, well, this hasn't happened since this date and it won't happen again until then. They knew that in ancient Babylon too. Uh, so they were really smart uh, in their uh, observations and in their math. Um, so even the fact that there could be a, a conjunction where maybe a planet does what we call retrograde motion, where it looks like it, it stops and then it moves back and then it goes forward again. <clears throat> planets don't really stop their motion. It's an optical illusion because the, the Earth is also moving. And when when the Earth passes inside the orbit of another planet, it, it makes it look like the planet moves back. But anyway, some people are like, well, the fact that, you know, Jupiter would have gone retrograde and gone back and forth would have would have meant that that would have been really astonishing to the Magi. Not really. They would have calculated that. They would have known that. Wouldn't surprise them at all. So... I think it's got to be something less of a, an observable thing and more of a, a logic of astrology that they would have looked and, and read into the stars. Um, okay. Essentially, what they would have read is this. Okay, there's, there's a newborn king. He's a really powerful, really important king. In fact, the most important king that we've seen prophesied is a, a birth in the sky since our time. And based on the, the way that it appears in this certain constellation, this is going to be a king of those people over in Judea. And so this explains then why the Magi, who are supposedly guided by the star, why they don't go to Bethlehem. Why, why, why do they go to Jerusalem? And if, if the star is guiding them to where Jesus is born, why doesn't the star point them to Bethlehem? Because the star isn't pointing to a, a place like a compass, Rather, it's, an, it's a horoscope. It says there's a newborn king in the land of the Jews. Okay, where do you go? You go to the capital. Go to Jerusalem. If there's going to be a king, go to the royal palace in Jerusalem and say, hey, 
where's the newborn king? And so what do we read in Matthew's gospel? This is exactly what the Magi do. It says they show up in Jerusalem asking, where is he? Where's who? The newborn king. We saw his star at its heliacal rising. We, we read his horoscope um, from wherever we came from, and, and we're here. Where is he? Well, they're in Jerusalem because all they know is great, powerful new king, biggest king ever, born in the land of the Jews. Let's go to the capital of the Jews. So that fits uh, the story. So um, that's maybe more than you wanted to know about the Star of Bethlehem and uh, a little bit of the astronomy or astrology behind that. But uh, <coughs> it does help maybe kind of keep things in perspective if you were disappointed with the great conjunction of um, Saturn and, and Jupiter this this last winter. Okay, so that, that's a little bit about the, the Magi and the Star of Bethlehem. Now, the baptism of the Lord. Uh, I mentioned we're going we're gonna to celebrate that that feast in the uh, the modern Novus Ordo right here this this Sunday, uh, Sunday after Epiphany, in the extraordinary form traditional calendar. Uh, January thirteenth is the octave day after Epiphany, and so that is the day um, on which we we celebrate the baptism of the Lord. Um, I guess it's not quite the the octave day. Yeah, just about. Uh, and so we, we celebrate the baptism there, and that, that ends the Epiphany season. A couple things to point out about the baptism of Jesus then. Um, number one, I, Jesus was not a sinner in need of repentance. Okay, The people that are going to John do so because they're in need of repentance. I once saw like a made-for-TV series on uh, Jesus, and they're like, uh, Jesus is coming to, to John to be baptized, and John sees him. And he's like, wow, Jesus. And, um, you know, Jesus asks him, well, will you baptize me? And John's like, sure, Jesus, if you repent of your sins. And I'm like, good heavens. I mean, did they even consult with Christians before they made this? Jesus has no sin. Not only did Mary not have sin, Jesus definitely didn't have sin. Uh, he's God. But rather, he comes to give uh, an example uh, to the followers of John. And also, as we say, uh, he is the one who, in fact, makes all the waters holy then. We kind of see this as a prefigurement of instituting baptism. It also allows his identity to be known, as we said, that manifestation of the Father. You are my beloved Son, uh, and the Holy Spirit appears in the form of a dove. So all that is going on at the baptism. It is also the time that Jesus then... Uh, really starts to begin his his ministry. And we often will look to the wedding feast of Cana, his first miracle, which is the third manifestation. But um, that's because after he gets baptized, he goes into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. That's really the kind of important beginning of his ministry. In a lot of ways, his entire life is going to be carrying out that, that ministry to combat Satan. Jesus is God, and he is going to bring people to heaven, and there is an enemy. We do have real opposition that does not want us all to be in heaven. And and so Jesus comes and he does battle with Satan. And we'll see that um, after the baptism, the next thing we know, Jesus is in the wilderness, and pretty soon we'll, we'll begin Lent with this same readings of Jesus going out to be tempted by Satan. Now, before we move on and talk about the wedding feast of Cana, one thing you got to keep perfectly in mind, though, Jesus is doing battle with Satan, but th this is not like it's a fair fight, okay? It's not like, oh, we don't know who's going to win. 
Satan is a creature, okay? Is is an angel, fallen angel, an angel and a creature. Uh, so there, there's no even comparison. Uh, of course God wins. These aren't like two gods that are duking it out. It's, it's creator and creature. Um, so we, I think, sometimes need to keep that in mind as well. We who have been baptized, we have the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling in us. Satan is no match for that. Now, he is very smart, he is very cunning, and we are very fallen even after our baptism because of the effects of original sin. Uh, it, is, it is not a fair fight in our case either because Satan is pretty smart and cunning. But we too are on the, the winning side. We're, we're just, we're going to lose a lot more battles uh, before we win the war, uh, whereas Jesus didn't lose any battles with, with Satan, okay? Okay, finally, to end up tonight... Um, and then I'll see if there are any more questions. But uh, the wedding feast at Cana, this final manifestation mystery of, of Jesus. This is uh, the first miracle that, that Jesus works publicly, and it's done at the intercession of Mary. And this is a, a I love, I've got a, I've got a picture of this actually up on my wall in my bedroom uh, over my bed. It, it's um, a rendering done of the, in the iconographic style that's at the, Abbey at Conception Abbey in Conception, Missouri, uh, where the, the monks are there. And it's got Mary there. And I love the, the, the description because it's like, well, there was a wedding feast at Cana um, and, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus had also been invited. Isn't that neat? Like, Mary's there. This is amazing. Yeah. And Jesus had also been invited. Yeah. That other guy's here too. Uh, so Mary was pretty darn special. Uh, amongst the community, and uh, she's the one that notices that uh, the wine has run out. They have no wine. Those those four words are some of the most important words in my own kind of spirituality of Mary. They have no wine. So many times I look at God uh, and I invoke the intercession of Our Lady. I'm just saying, I've got no wine. Out of wine. I'm running low. I need some wine. I, almost just to say to Mary, could you intercede for me? I need a little help here, okay? Um, yeah. And so Mary does what a good Jewish mom does, and she notices the problem. She goes to her son and says, Jesus, they have no wine. And notice she doesn't say, Jesus, you get over here and fix this right now. Well, I mean, her son's God, and she knows that. Uh, and, and she knows that he probably is well aware of the problem, but she kind of wants to know what she's going to do. It's like, Jesus, they don't have any wine. You see this? What are you going to do? And his response is a little interesting. It's literally in the Greek, what to you and to me? I mean, what, what's this concern to, to me and you? Or or what, what what is there between us? Or like, almost like, do you know what you're you're asking? How How can you be like, thinking you're going to tell me almost that there's something that needs to be done or all, all kinds of things. Jesus even calls her woman. Woman, what to me and to you? Clearly, Jesus is seeing there's much more involved in this than simply a little bit of wine that's run out at a wedding. It's a very, very big deal. He's about to work a miracle that if he does, you just can't go back. Uh, in other words, this th Satan will know for sure this is this is the real deal. Game is on. And pretty soon everyone's going to find out about his miracles and there's no going back. So it's a, it's a, it's a big, big deal. It's Jesus's big coming out party. The final kind of manifestation of 
you know, think of think of Jesus at the time of his birth, maybe two years old, whatever, manifested to the Magi. Still a pretty small group. Uh, then he's manifested at his baptism to the disciples of John the Baptist who were around and would have been listening. Uh, but when he starts working miracles, like at the wedding feast of Cana, pretty soon everybody knows who he is and he can't even enter a town openly, it says. So that's, uh, that's when things really get big. Uh, and so that's the final manifestation uh, that happens there. All right, I'll put in a plug for questions here. If there are any last questions, we have a couple minutes if you want me to get to anything else. Uh, if not, we'll, we'll end things here. And um, it is uh, Christmas until the baptism of the Lord, so that's uh, that's going to be this upcoming Sunday uh, in the the ordinary form. Um, we'll go to the the thirteenth in the the extraordinary form, and there is a little season of Epiphany uh, in the. Uh, in the traditional calendar, the Christmas season technically ends with Epiphany, and then there's a little season of Epiphany, um, and so it's a it's a very brief little season, uh, and then we, the rest of the year starts to be numbered Tempus per Annum, or time through the year, and the, the Sundays are literally numbered Sundays after Epiphany, uh, until we we start the uh, pre Lenten season of Septuagesima, so we'll begin naming time now Sundays after Epiphany in the uh, traditional calendar and uh, keep looking for those manifestations. So just like Jesus uh, was manifested by uh, the star, we know that creation works to manifest Jesus. There was an earthquake at his death. There was, you know, the wind and the sea that obeyed him. Water let him walk on top of him. Uh, there was, you know, darkness in the sky when he died. Um, all creation obeys God, and that means that, you know, everything from the star of Bethlehem, whatever it was, to the the wind that blows today, and we don't know where it comes, all of it is a manifestation of God if we're willing to look at it. So I, I pray today that uh, you might not miss the various manifestations of God, because we know all creation proclaims the glory of God. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, episode of Sean the Baptist Live. You can catch the morning message every morning uh, via seanthebaptist.org. You can subscribe to the podcast, or I put the video up on YouTube. It's on Facebook. If you haven't been to seanthebaptist.org, check that out. Like my Facebook page. Follow me on my YouTube channel. Follow me on Twitter. I put a bunch of pictures out on my uh, Flickr photo page today from the uh, Christmas lights at Union Station in Kansas City. Uh, you can get all that on Sean the Baptist. Uh, go check that out, seanthebaptist.org. And uh, I look forward to uh, catching you each morning for the morning message. A little five minutes to start your day off well. And then I'll be back again 6.30 next Wednesday for another edition of Sean the Baptist Live. This has been January 6th, Feast of the Epiphany. I'm Sean the Baptist, Father Sean Tunick, wishing you a happy feast. <laughs>